0: They say life is stranger than fiction.
1: There's two ways of going a supernova, and fortunately, everyone can relax. The sun won't go supernova. Um, It will become a red giant. Although when it becomes a red giant, Mercury and Venus will probably get swallowed by the sun.
0: But sometimes what we see in movies or read in books is so incredible that it obviously couldn't be possible. Or could it?
1: This is how technical we're now getting. And actually it happened with Interstellar that when it was published, people were working out the time deletion that you just described and were saying, this is wrong. And because they'd missed the fact that it's a rotating black hole.
0: Welcome to Sci-Fi Sci-Fact. I'm Brian Crump and this is a podcast where we take science fiction's strangest ideas, weirdest elements, most unfeasible plot drivers and explore if they could actually happen in real life. Maybe they already have. And in every episode, we bring in a scientist from New Zealand's McDiamond Institute to explain the theories behind some of fiction's more fantastic flights of fancy. If any theory exists. In this episode, Jan Eldridge, Associate Professor of Physics at the University of Auckland, takes a look at the use of supernovae. Exploding, but also the opposite, dying stars, as plot devices in fiction. This
1: is Transoma Medical Rescue Vessel Nightingale 229, hailing Transoma Mining Operation Titan 37. Repeat. This is Transoma Medical Rescue Vessel Nightingale 229, hailing Transoma Mining Operation Titan 37. Repeat.
0: Were you thinking of any particular science fiction? number in terms of this like some episode of Star Trek or you know the film that I think of which is not quite supernova um, it's kind of the opposite is a film called Sunshine do you know that one where the sun is dying and they send these mass, this, this spaceship with all the basic, nu- basically all the nuclear weapons we've got to crash into the sun to spark it back into life do you know that one? Unfortunately I do Our sun is dying mankind faces extinction. 16 months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our mission, reignite the sun before it's too late. Welcome to Icarus 2.
1: And it's a great movie in terms of, you know, the depiction of space, of going to the sun, the special spaceship you need. But the physics of why the sun is dying, I just really, really hate it. And they never explain it in the movie. If you watch the movie, they never tell you why the sun's dying. And you go to the DVD and you look at the special features and you find out that Brian Cox was a science advisor, I think, and it shows you this on Wikipedia. When he came up with a quantum, like there was some strange particle that got into the centre of the sun and it was stopping the nuclear reactions, and it just made me so like, no, that wouldn't happen because we would see it. We would see stars suddenly vanishing, um, like the sun, and it's just it's, really
0: it's, not yes, even that's, not that's even Brian, movie. not even the great Brian Cox could bring you around. <laughs> no, no. I mean, so,
1: so he, he's a particle physicist, so he knows what he's talking about, and it's perfectly reasonable. But it's like we don't see that in the universe, and actually it's really hard to kill stars and it's really hard to blow them up. So, you know, I mean, you're talking about sunshine. There's another movie actually called Supernova that came out in the year 2000, and it's just like they they wanted to blow a star up, and this is, you see this time and time again in lots of science fiction shows where it's like the writer goes, need to blow a star up, and they use magic to try and do it because,
0: yeah, it's, 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 it's annoying. So Brian Cox hasn't fallen your estimation, has he, Jan? No, because he's an excellent,
1: excellent communicator, right? Okay. And uh, the, the job he does, that's fine. But it's just in this one case, this one movie, I may I may never get over it. I'm sorry. Um, I
0: mean, it, for me, it's a great movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, And it, I found it really gripping. It was one of those thrillers that had me on the edge of my seat. And oh, I, I was an uncomfortable, you know, especially when they, mm-hmm. they ventured outside the spaceship. And they had to avoid sure. being, they, even though the sun was dying, it still packed a punch and they had to avoid being hit by the sun's rays because there's something wrong. They had to go out and repair. Oh, yeah. that was that was fantastic. But, yeah, I, I kind of just didn't even think about why is the sun dying, you know. Oh, it's just dying, you know. Some suns, this happens, you know. And then, you know, get some some atomic weapons, you can kick-start it again, you know. Yeah, that could, could yeah, be plausible.
1: Which is the one thing you would never do. I don't know why, it, why they came up with that because, you know, actually just, the, the centre of the sun is like billions of degrees Kelvin and to actually get the material down there would be nearly impossible. So it's, it's yeah, but it's fun. And the, and the other bits going outside, that is real. You know, if you even if the sun was dying and you're outside, you would get burnt to a crisp very quickly. That was very well done.
0: The only supernova story that's coming to mind for me is actually one that Arthur, it's a short story that Arthur C. Clarke wrote. I think it was Arthur nice. C. Clarke. And Mm -hmm. it's, um, I can't remember all the details, but basically um, these people, um, I think, uh, know that their sun is going to turn into a supernova. And they're getting ready for the inevitable. And somehow the connection is made between this supernova and this is a different civilization. It's not Earth. It's another civilization, another planet. Mm -hmm. And the supernova, and they're getting ready, and that's going to be the end for them. And then it cuts to, to um, Earth, and this supernova is the star that guided the um, wise men to Jesus. Does that ring a bell?
1: Um, yeah, I think it's called The Star, I think. Oh, um, and it's like you it was in an anthology, as you say, by Arthur C. Clarke. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've never read this story, but it is that question of like, what would you do in that kind of global catastrophe? Because I mean, there was that recent movie, uh, don't look up about an asteroid going to hit Earth. And it's, I mean, it, that's the fun thing about sci-fi. Sometimes it's about science and sometimes it's just looking at society in that way. So, you know, what would you do if you knew we had like years to live and you would try and leave a record of, I'm sure of like your civilization, but then also to think it to Star Bethlehem. And I remember there were some people who say maybe that was a supernova or not. We, we don't know. We can never, we, it's always difficult to work out exactly where it was and how long it would last. Um, but yeah, but it's kind of, it's never like, it it is telling a story about life and the sort of like fragility, I suppose, examining the fragility of life by having a supernova there and just what it can signify to different civilizations. If you're very close up or if you're very
0: far away. The thing about our own sun is it will become a red giant at some point, but that's not the same as a supernova, is it?
1: No, no. So, um... Then there's two ways of going a supernova. And fortunately, everyone can relax. The sun won't go supernova. Um, it will, as you say, become a red giant. Because at the moment, it's taking hydrogen, the simplest element in the universe, and turning it to helium. And once it's done all of that, it'll eventually get hot enough at the center to take the helium and convert it into carbon and oxygen. And that core then shrinks down and becomes something a white dwarf. And as the core shrinks down, all the remaining hydrogen hasn't been burnt gets thrown off and falls something called a planetary nebula, but really quite... Beautiful. But of course, as that all throws off, um, you know, all the planets and stuff will still be left pretty much okay. Although when it becomes a red giant, Mercury and Venus will probably get swallowed by the Sun. Um, but yeah, so eventually in... So, sorry, five, Jan, sorry to million, interrupt,
0: but what is, the, what is the part of the Sun's life cycle that's, in your opinion, really quite beautiful? What was that again? I didn't quite catch a, that.
1: It, it Sorry, yes. It's a planetary nebula phase. Planetary so nebula yeah because um, when people used to look through telescopes they used to think oh it looks a bit like a planet but it's a star very far away and so it's actually like an ionized gas so the gas gets thrown off and you've got this big gas cloud coming away from the star and at the center you've got this white dwarf which is effectively the very hot ashes the very hot embers of the nuclear fusion that's just slowly cooling down but in that first phase where the gas is thrown off it's really hot and it ionizes the um this gas cloud and you see this big you see them all different types of shapes because some of these things are in binary stars, and the material doesn't get thrown off symmetrically; it can get thrown off in semi-shape, funny shapes, and so you can get things like the cat's eye nebulae, things that look like butterflies, and so they can be quite beautiful. And they last for about a hundred thousand years.
0: What, but then what, you get this. What will the sun look like, perhaps, from Earth in this phase?
1: Oh, in that phase, well, the Earth will already be cooked.
0: Yeah, really, will be cooked, cooked by then. Yeah, We'll yeah, already, already be gone. Will, will we have been swallowed by the sun by then or just simply cooked?
1: No, it will just be cooked. So in about 200 million years, the sun will be too hot to uh, actually for life to be on the Earth. It'll 200 really million enough.
0: years, did you say? Yep. Really? Yeah,
1: that's all we've got. Really? Yep. I thought we had at that several,
0: point, I thought we had several billion, Jan.
1: That's just until the sun becomes a red giant. But the sun is growing and getting hotter. And it's growing at about an inch a year. And so it gets hotter and brighter every time. And so the temperature of the Earth over hundreds, well, 200 million years is roughly when we think it will be too hot for life. And so we'll have to move to Mars oh. or to the asteroid belt or further out Jan, to be in the, the, this, the habitable zone.
0: This is a revelation, Jan, that um, we've got less time. And I thought, I thought, oh, you know, we've, been, we've had about 4 billion years so far and we've got another 4 billion before the sun starts to go feral on us. You're telling me we've only got a fraction of that time. Yeah, it's still quite a long time, though. Yeah, Two hundred million is a lot less than four billion. Yeah, yeah. But we it's better a lot of, start it's making the most. We better start making the most of this planet. Time is short. It's later than we think.
1: Yeah, it, I, I suppose you could look at
0: it that way. Yes. Anyway, sorry, Jan. I've gone all the, all off on a tangent. have <laughs> no, no, no. I've got it, my it, own it, planetary it, nebula. Running around my brain now. Um, so okay, we're already cooked, yeah. so we won't even see this. But is this no, even no. before the sun becomes a red giant?
1: No. So it's the time says the sun will become such a big red giant that it that, that the surface almost just floats away in some ways. One way of looking at it, and so that gas cloud that we see evolving and like looking is basically is like a colourful cloud of gas around this hot star will actually be if, if there was in a spaceship or something or if we're on Mars or Saturn or Jupiter we'd be actually be inside the bubble and so we would see this gas cloud expanding away from us with this very hot white blue white sun at the center of our solar system that would slowly then fade away
0: okay it still sounds like i mean that's that is already a great vehicle for um science fiction but it's interesting sure. because i've learned something jam i've learned that it's not just going to go boom it's suddenly turned into a red giant. One moment it's cooking helium. The next moment it's, it's sorry, it's, it's um, fusing hydrogen into helium. The next moment it's, it's helium into carbon and oxygen. No, no, no. It's going to be doing this slowly. We're slowly going to cook. Um, yeah. So that kind of, in terms of our own sun, it's not going to be a sudden demise. So no, it's, no. we've got to look to other stars for the, the sudden explosion scenario.
1: Yeah, yeah. So if our sun was in a binary star system and it's become a white dwarf and it's got another star nearby, what can happen is the the white dwarf of carbon oxygen can interact with this other star. And we're not too sure exactly what goes on. We know it's got to be a white dwarf that explodes. But that white dwarf can get to a mass that's about one and a half times the mass of the sun because it can steal mass from the other star or maybe it can collide with another white dwarf. And that's at the point in time when you get this really dramatic explosion. And that's where you make this something that's about one and a half times the mass of the sun. It's all carbon and oxygen. And it ignites and produces something called a thermonuclear supernova because it's just a carbon detonation. And it makes about one sun's mass worth of iron in a single explosion. These are the brightest supernovae. And these are the ones that people use to actually, because they're so bright, we can see them in galaxies billions of light years away. And so we can actually measure the expansion of the universe. Um, but yes, that's also, though, where all the iron comes from. So the iron in your blood has come from stars like our sun that have exploded in this one type of supernova, um, even though it's not the most common type of supernova, but it's the type of supernova that makes all the iron in the universe. So that's where the iron in your hemoglobin in your blood has come from.
0: comes from an exploding star. Yeah. If it wasn't for yeah, supernova, explode- I wouldn't have blood. Well, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no,
1: So so that's one type of supernova. But then the other type comes from things we call massive stars. And so that's stars that are about eight times the mass of the sun. And these are so big, their cores can keep on fusing. They go past carbon and oxygen, don't stop there. They go to form neon, magnesium, silicon, and iron. And when they've got this iron core, that can collapse down to that neutron star thing, which is like just a big ball of neutrons. And of course, this thing is still about one and a half times the mass of the sun, but it's just made of different stuff. And that can blow a star up. And the thing is that only happens for these massive stars about eight times more massive than our sun and those supernovae because again it's different explosions are coming from a different thing at the center one thing was a carbon oxygen white dwarf here it's this massive star forming a neutron star and they make all the oxygen in the universe so it's not just we need the iron in our blood to live we also need the oxygen in these exploding massive stars to be able to breathe for so the hemoglobin to have something to carry around their bodies So um, that always gets me excited. And so when I see in movies that supernovae are just made up by magic, it it really upsets me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do most, because you're talking about stars eight times the mass of the sun. Now, aren't there many, many stars much, much bigger than that in mass?
1: Well, um, if I remember correctly, it's something like most stars are actually about the same mass of our sun. So it's like it's actually only about, I'd have to go and actually calculate it. But maybe let's say about 10% of all the stars in the universe are the ones that would actually go supernovae. And you're right. It's from about eight times the mass of the sun up to the most massive ones, maybe being 300 times the mass of the sun. So it's a really, really big things. And it's just they, when they explode and die, output as much energy in a few months as our sun will output over its 10 billion year lifetime.
0: At the end of a supernovae, so, what, what yeah. are you likely to have? Are you going to have an, an, always have a neutron star at the end of that?
1: Well, one of the big questions we don't know is you. we know you get, when this massive star dies, you're either going to get a neutron star or a black hole. But the question we don't know is we know whenever you form a neutron star, you're going to get a supernova because you've, you've got lots of energy there and there's something still there that can then store that energy and put it into the material around it and blow the star up. But with a black hole, we're not too sure. Because we know sometimes we see things where it's like that black hole was formed, swallowed some of the material and spat it back out again. But sometimes we've seen at least one, well, we think we've seen one star that has just gone. So there wasn't even a supernova. And so that star died and didn't return anything to the universe. All the material, all the nuclear fusion.
0: It simply went black. Simply got okay, to a point it where its own gravity meant that no light, no energy was emitted, emitted from it, or hardly any. Yeah, yeah. And so that it's, I mean that would. Be, are there any science fiction scenarios you know of where that happens, where the sun just goes pop, turns off because it's become a black hole?
1: Um, not a black hole, but there are plenty where they try and turn the sun off, and this guy is supposed to go back to sunshine. Um, that that's for example one case but in um there's something called the saga of the seven suns by kevin j anderson and they have these um alien beings that actually live in stars and also in gas giants and they're at war with each other um and so the the beings or the aliens that live at the very center of gas giants planets like jupiter go and try and destroy a, uh, a star because that's where the beings that live in stars were living um and it's quite this is told from the viewpoint of humans Sitting on a uh, planet where suddenly their star does straight dying, but it's not like in sunshine where it's slowly dying over many thousands of uh, many centuries. Here it's like overnight the sun shuts down, and again that's that's again you're kind of appealing to magic and like fantastical beings who have this wonderful understanding of the universe. But it's when you're looking at it physically, I tried really hard to think of how I could cause a supernova in a star within certain bounds, and it's 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 impossible because the amount of energy you need is so much. Um, there are, some, there are some
0: science fiction scenarios where that happens. Isn't there a Star Trek Voyager? They'd force a star to go yeah. to supernova? Why were they trying yeah. to do no, that? But, no.
1: but they weren't. It was because um, in Star Trek, there's these beings called Q who are omnipotent. So they're like gods and they're having a civil war, which is kind of weird. Because if you're omnipotent and you're having a – anyway. And so because they're <laughs> warring, they're destroying <laughs> Why would you – I mean, you'd be,
0: you be beyond warfare. I mean, that's just petty
1: yeah yeah if only if only it was all that simple um but yeah so they have this so they're working out and so this crew suddenly see five or six supernova all going off and think this is a bit weird and they find out it's just because some gods are having an argument um so yeah
0: how much energy would we have to be able to somehow reel in a sun or two or three and collide them in order to make a supernova could that possibly do the trick
1: So, yeah, so I worked out in uh, tons of TNT how many tons of TNT you need to get the energy for one supernova. And it's 10 billion, trillion, trillion tons of TNT. And so that's more massive than, you know, Jupiter. It's, you know, there's not enough material around. So we can't do it chemically. And so you're right. You'd actually have to probably train two um, stars around. There is something that some theorists once came up with called a Sarkarov thruster, where you build a big shell around your star with a hole in it. And if you balance the gravity just right, you can drag the star away from its orbit, and then you can try and smash two white dwarfs into each other. So that would be the best way of doing it. Core collapse supernova is difficult because you need to have something that become a neutron star. And it's not like you can't take a neutron star and throw it at another star because it's the formation of the neutron star when it goes from that iron core to the neutron star that causes the explosion. But if you can smash two white dwarfs together, you're right. That is one of the... We're we're pretty sure that's how some of the supernovae we see actually happen. But yeah, if you wanted to... So in the novel Red Dwarf, they have this idea that uh, Coca-Cola wants to make a supernova on the sky so that the supernovae write out, Coke is life. (laughs) And so if you wanted to do that, you'd have to get these white dwarfs smashing at each other in the right places, in the right patch of sky, all at the right distances, so that from Earth, it looks like at the same time, it would be a long-term
0: project. You're listening to Sci-Fi, Sci-Fact. I'm talking to Jan Eldridge, Associate Professor of Physics at Auckland University, about the plausibility of, well, we know that novae, supernovae and supernova supernovae, um, they happen, exploding stars, but as... Um, I guess, the backdrop to science fiction scenarios, but also the plausibility of, of making them as well. Jan, what about making a black hole? So, so that's
1: pretty um,
0: easy if you've got a neutron star.
1: So um, we're actually not too sure how big these neutron stars can get. But if you keep adding mass onto them, they will eventually become a black hole. And we've actually probably seen a few black holes that are like that because they've been in the binary star system. And there's a really good um, plot device in the recent Expanse novel series. So um, if you've read that series and you haven't got to the later books yet, turn away because there's spoilers coming up.
0: Right. Spoiler alert, um, Expanse fans, block ears, fast forward, whatever. It's only
1: only a few years old. Um, But there's, there's two alien things that are in species that have been in battle. And um, so one of them decided, OK, let's get this neutron star and spin it up to just the right, just below the mass where it becomes a black hole. And what happens is they booby trap it. And so when the, somebody was to visit them, they go in and they start looking at the neutron star like the aliens might have done. And then it becomes a black hole and actually has these massive, powerful jets and explosions. That um, is it's not dramatic, but you would see them in, if you're looking in gamma rays, you get these bursts of gamma rays. And so, yeah, that's actually when, when I looked at it and I thought like that that's brilliant because they were actually taking real physics. They really understood what was going on with how you can make, take a neutron star and turn it into a black hole. And it was if you could do that and you find yourself a neutron star, completely uh, physical and reasonable. Um, so it was really quite exciting to read that. Um, yeah, they haven't made that into the TV series yet. But yeah, so it'd be interesting if they did because it would look fantastic.
0: Jan, a little aside, I should have asked this earlier, but just remind us again what a neutron star is.
1: Okay, so a neutron star is um well they can go back to the other one we talked about where we talked about neutronium, but it's 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 effectively a, it's a star that's about one and a half times the mass of the sun, but it's all the stuff is compressed down into 10 kilometers across. So something the size of a small city. And um, everything is so dense, it's like one giant nucleus, and everything is made of neutrons. So there's no protons, it's all just neutrons, and that's the only way it can be so dense and held together.
0: No electrons so that either. remnant.
1: Um, I, I maybe at the surface it's complicated because again, it's the, the the extremes of the matter we're talking about are so extreme that we don't really understand them and we have to start talking about things about nuclear pasta. And this is the last thing we could talk about with all the stuff of science fiction, is you know, with black holes and neutron stars and supernovae, I talk about how can we make one, but in science fiction, what we see is people actually using them because you know if you've got all that energy around. You know what better way of like trying to do your mad experiment than trying to have all the energy? I've told you how much TNT it is, and so actually, we find that you know people are trying to. We have the time lords in Doctor Who who have their time travel because they made a supernova, they had the black hole, and they used that to power all their time travel experiments. So, you know, they're flipping the head on the thing rather than talking about how to make a supernova. It's what can you use a supernova for, really? What the TARDIS
0: uh, is powered yeah. by a supernova,
1: yeah. I think the original. So there's one case where the doctor's trying to talk to Rose because she's trapped in multi-dimension. And so he actually does use the, because um, it was the 10th doctor, he does use the uh, exploding supernova to power the connection through. Whereas, um, yeah, the earlier doctors actually went through and discussed this how Omega, the first Time Lord, was a stellar engineer and uh, from a supernova going off was able to use that to build the TARDIS, understand time, and allow the Time Lords and Doctor Who and the TARDIS to travel through time.
0: Okay, well, let's just look at that for a moment. Um, How could you possibly get close enough to a supernova to exploit any of the energy coming off it? And what would you use to harvest that energy?
1: I, I, I would have to go with magic here. Because you mentioned right at the beginning about sunshine, how just in front of the sun, they had to go outside and do experiments and that's uh, trying to fix their ship. And that would have fried them instantly. It would be much worse with a supernova because it's not just, you've got all these radioactive particles flying around. But they would be very bad for you. We know radioactivity is bad. You've got, um, the re- one of the reasons why supernova shine is because they're making um, radioactive elements that then decay. And so again, it's a supernova would not be a nice place to be. But I mean, imagine you had a spaceship with very thick, lead walls, actually, probably if you took an asteroid, borrowed into it, if it was a metal asteroid, you could actually be inside pretty safe because the metal of the asteroid would probably shield you. And then if you had a magnetic field as well to make sure any charged particles don't come near where you're living, um, you would be able to sit there. And actually, because there's all these particles coming off, you would actually be able to trap those and try and harness that energy into um, heating things and actually doing the experiment you want. Or you wait for the supernova to die down. I, that may take a few hundred years. But if you've got the black hole or the neutron star at the center, then even just being near that, um, and if you like to try and if it's a feeding black hole or neutron star, some attack matter is going in, you get the heat released, And again, that's actually probably a bit safer to do than just using the big explosion. And I think recently some astronomers uh, in Taiwan, if I remember correctly, um, actually did the same calculation of what happens if you have a black hole, build what we term a Dyson sphere around it, which is a habitable shell where, you know, you try and capture all the energy that comes off a black hole accreting. I mean, you wouldn't want to do it for a supernova because that's really explosive. But the remnant, that black hole, a neutron star that's left over, you could use that to power your civilization for a long, long time. Can, just by building how,
0: how, it. How, come, how come something energy is coming out of a black hole? I thought everything got sucked into the black hole by its gravity.
1: Yes. Good question. So um actually go and think about interstellar. So in interstellar, they have this black hole they go and visit and you yes. can see the accretion disk that's very, very bright. And so this is actually real physics. So you've got this accretion disk and stuff is flowing in. But because you can't, you've got to take angular momentum away. And the way the disks work is that stuff goes in, but also stuff comes out in terms of material. So it spreads out very thin gets wider so it gets if it starts off thick it becomes thinner and spreads out but also it gets very hot because you've got all this stuff rubbing against each other and so that's where the energy comes out because it's the energy falling down into the black hole And of course the stuff that goes right inside you never get out but the process of that stuff forming this disc because people often think a black hole just goes <laughs> and sucks stuff in but you know it's a, it's the same idea as the planets going around the sun you know we didn't we don't suddenly go and dive into the sun. we kind got to keep going because of this thing called angular momentum, the momentum you've got to go to go round and round in circles. And so that's how you can actually gain energy at coming out of a black hole. You have that accretion disk like you see in an Interstellar, and uh, that actually, if the black hole is big enough and the disk is big enough, can produce quite a lot of light the Dyson, and quite a lot of energy it, that's then released.
0: Was it Dyson Sphere, you said, that yeah, in theory could be yeah. built around the black hole and could capture the energy and could power civilization.
1: Yeah, 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 because people have always suggested that there may be these things that are built around normal stars. And what was interesting about this paper I read is that they said, well, what, why do we just build it around a star? We can build it around a black hole or a neutron star and use that as the energy source. If we because, did you know, that, if though,
0: you're- so if you're close enough, you'd help, say, so, so imagine a black hole um, where the sun is. How close mm-hmm. would we have to build the Dyson sphere to the black hole to to get sufficient energy to run to support life,
1: we would probably actually, if we didn't want to cook ourselves, have to be further out than. We, I would have to actually go and crunch these numbers because it's not okay. an easy thing to come up with. Right, so, but might, it's, so it's like you wouldn't, build, we, we wouldn't go quite close.
0: We would have to build a sphere, a massive, like about the size of of it would be about as big as the Earth's orbit, or or more. Yeah, around the Sun, possibly, possibly. What would yeah, we build possibly. it out of, Jan?
1: Well, the rest of the planets. I mean, this is where you <laughs> this is where you have to start um, to start appealing to the fact that you know technologies and materials will develop, um, but you know it's very difficult. One of the strongest substances you see within science fiction is this kind of single molecule, where you build a spaceship whole out of a single molecule. So it's really tough rather than having lots of things. But again, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's difficult. So yeah,
0: uh, yeah, yep. nothing. None of the stuff sounds easy. Um, <laughs> Dan, but the other thing about a black hole, its mass, wouldn't its mass, its gravity, affect time? You know how an interstellar, they get close to the black hmm. hole um, and they think half an hour, they're on a planet that's closer to the black hole than the spaceship that they've come from, the mothership, and they're down there for less than half an hour. They get off the planet because there's some big wave that's going to swamp them and it actually kills one of the, I think knocks off a, one of the cast member, And... um they go back to the mothership, and he—the only one on the mothership—says you've been gone about eleven years or something like that. Mm. Isn't that going to be yeah. another issue? Yeah. If we're this yeah. close to a black hole, even say out, out of Mars, would it would it change time for us? It,
1: it would do, but it's not until you get really close. But then this also depends on whether it's um, a rotating black hole or this is how technical we are now getting. And actually, it happened with Interstellar that when it was published, people were working out the time dilation that you just described and saying, this is wrong. And because they'd missed the fact that it's a rotating black hole, because um, Roy Kerr, who's a New Zealand mathematician physicist, is the person who came up explaining what's unique about rotating black hole and how it makes this time dilation worse. But if it was a non-rotating black hole, it wouldn't actually be that bad. But it would mean we'd have to have a spherical shell, right? If you tried to build a tower or something, then there would be, if you went the people closer to the black hole, would be um, experiencing slower time than those further on out. So that is, again, a huge problem when you start looking at this. But that would only be significant if it was a rotating black hole, rotating close to as fast as a black hole can rotate.
0: A rotating black hole. Why would that dilate time in a different way? Okay. (laughs) Sorry, Jan. Well, no, this stuff is so interesting. There's all these various threads. I, I I can't help myself.
1: I know. I know. Well, before going into that quickly, um, we don't know how rotating black holes form. Maybe they form into, they, we know they definitely do become rapidly rotating when two black holes merge, because if they spin around each other and then come together, and there's a lot of spin that has to go somewhere, so it goes into the black hole. But when stars die in a supernova, we, we're not too sure if the spinning of the black hole actually has anything to do with how fast the star was spinning. And it, there's an interesting disconnect there. But um, to try and describe why the spinning black hole is different. Um, <laughs> you did, haven't, you haven't just
0: prepared the, for that one, have you, Jan?
1: No, but it, I, the universe <laughs> is really weird. Isn't it? And it's all to do with energy
0: and stuff. Isn't it? And, and, the, and the our time is, on it is less than I thought. You, you've taken billion years of billions of years of my prospects. Okay, I wasn't going to be around anyway, but you know, my descendants, they've got less time than I thought. Never mind. I'm, I'm sorry. No, oh, that's all right, I'm Jan. Sorry. I'll get over it. Um, <laughs> last thing I wanted to ask you supernovae. Um, say there was a supernova um, as close as Alpha Centauri or something like that. Would it, would it wipe us out? Are these explosions so big that even stars reasonably close to us, if they went supernova, would they affect us?
1: So. So the good news is that there aren't any um, nearby stars that will go supernovae in the next few mil, hundred million years. So we're safe. How do we know, Jan? How closest. do we know? How do we know? So so we're, we're living in a quite remarkable age where we know the distance to nearly all the nearby stars. So we know the nearest 2,000 stars, and that's out to, like, say, a few hundred light like years. We know the distances. And so we can work out how far away they are. There's two that are going to probably go next, the closest. I mean. Any other star in the galaxy might explode. But the two that are closest to us that we could worry about are one called Gamma Velorum and the other one is Betelgeuse, which everyone knows because it's an Orion and it's red and it's easy to see. Uh, but if those explode, then we'll see a very pretty light show, but we're probably pretty much OK. We're not too sure exactly how close you'd have to be because um, so a colleague of mine, Elizabeth Stanway at the University of Borough, has done some of these calculations trying to work out when our planet became habitable or like because it wasn't going to get killed off by a supernova or something else in the galaxy. And so you have to assume a distance. And it is like about a few hundred light years. When things are beyond that distance, we're okay. We'll get a great light show, and we'll be able to read at night from the light of this supernova, but it's not going to affect us. But we do know um, that supernovae have gone off in the years of evolution of the sun uh, because we can find different layers of sediment that are clearly supernova ejected, where the supernova went off, like a few hundred light-years away, and the dust eventually got to us after a few million years and actually then got onto the surface of the Earth and there was a thick enough layer that we could actually detect that in the sediment layer on the ocean bed. Could some of exciting. those
0: supernova have been responsible for extinction events on Earth? Unlikely,
1: because then we would see them linking up with those. If it was going to kill anything, there would be enough material in the fossil record that we'd be able to actually see that for change in the number of the uh, fossils through the fossil history, the fossil record at the same time, which we don't see. Betelgeuse
0: Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice already glow, glows brighter and fades a bit, doesn't it? And I know there's been some recent publicity about that and some people saying, oh, this could be a sign it's about <laughs> to go go super. But Alan Gilmore, our regular astronomer, has said, nah, nah, that's not likely. It does, does naturally... Change in brightness a bit. Yeah, yeah,
1: those stars do. So all these red giants. And we, we know red giants like Betelgeuse explode. Um, the first one we we actually saw. So we have these images of stars. We see a supernova, we go and check the Hubble Space Telescope archive, see if there's an image of the star before it exploded. And we know Betelgeuse and those stars that look like Betelgeuse do exploding supernovae, and they all vary towards the end of the lifetime. So we know this happens. It's not a link. But when I say the end of their lifetime, it might explode tonight, or it might explode in 100,000 years.
0: What's the last (laughs) known supernova event that was that bright that, say, you could use it to read at night?
1: Okay, so this is a really good question because I checked this. It was uh, 1987A that was exploded on February 24th in 1987. So in two days' time, it's the 35th anniversary of this naked eye supernova. And you could only see it from the Southern Hemisphere. So everyone in New Zealand some of the viewers may be able to remember this, that they would have been able to see the supernova with their naked eye. Um, and okay. I'm, I'm really annoyed that I'm still waiting for one.
0: But that, that wouldn't have been a so bright you could read it at night event, though. Don't we have to go back no, a few was, hundred years for that?
1: Yeah, so if you go back in history, um, even those ones, ones like uh there's the one in 1604 that I think Kepler saw and then there's Tycho Brahe's supernova which is from 1500. so we it, it, some people say we're overdue for a supernova in our galaxy but it's like about 400 years ago is how far we have to go back
0: i seem um, to remember I have very some, some accounts from chinese astronomers of of a of a supernova that that ended up becoming the crab nebula yeah yeah
1: so so this is interesting so there is an entire field called um Archaeological astronomy, where they go into the ancient records, and the Chinese records are the best. And you know, so the ones before Tycho and Kepler, we can go back to 1006. I think there's a supernova there. That's how far back they can go um, for all these different supernovae. I mean, the, the fun thing about that is we can see the remnants today where the material is thrown out. We know how old they are because we have the records. Like to the day, we know how old they are, which really enables you to work out the evolution of that star over because. I I say they fade over three months, but they still expand out. We can still see them for hundreds of thousands of years um, as this really hot gas cools off. Um, So, yeah, and there must have been even more old ones that we don't know about. And so there must be other records possibly. And so that's always the fun thing. If we get access to new historical records where people have written things down, then we can go to the... But you're right, the Chinese are best at that.
0: Jan, it's been lovely talking with you. You know what, I think our conversation has shown that sometimes uh, reality just kicks fantasy out of the park.
1: Yeah, that's true. I hope so sometimes.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Sci-Fi Sci-Fact, hosted by me, Brian Crump, produced by Andrew Robertson, and of course, made possible thanks to the incredible knowledge of those brilliant scientists at the MacDibert Institute. You can find more episodes of Sci-Fi Sci-Fact on the RNZ Podcasts page. RNZ Podcasts are also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or pretty much wherever you might find your podcasts. And make sure to follow us so you don't miss out on any new episodes.